Thank you, ladies and instrumentalists. If you will uh, reach for your Bible with me this morning and stand in honor of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 12. We'll be reading uh, Acts chapter 12, all 25 verses, as Pastor Bruce continues with this series, Let Them Hear. We'll be seeing today the folly of fighting God. We can find our text in Acts chapter 12, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 25. If you need a pew Bible, pew Bible's in front of you. You can find it on page 635. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did, and he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them on, of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel, and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your church and the things that it went through in the early days and the, the miracles and the works that you did to bring your word and make your word reveal it to us and to all people. 
We ask that you would open our hearts and minds this morning to, to hear what you would have for us and be with Pastor Bruce as he preaches and give him the words to speak. And may we learn from, uh, from Acts chapter 12 just the folly of fighting you and going against you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Thank you, Zach, for leading us in our scripture reading there in Acts 12. And uh, we're concluding our worship series that we've been in for the last couple of months through the book of Acts, uh, specifically through the chapters 8, 9, 10, and now here today, chapter 12, a series we've been calling Let Them Hear. And I want to begin with a story about two young boys. And no, this is not about my two boys. Two boys are playing football in Central Park when one is attacked by a Rottweiler. Thinking quickly, the other boy rips off a board of the nearby fence, wedges it down the dog's collar, and twists, breaking the dog's neck. A reporter who was strolling by sees the incident and rushes over to interview the boy. Young Giants fan saves friend from vicious animal. He starts writing in his notebook, but I'm not a Giants fan, the little hero replied. Sorry, since we are in New York, I just assume you were. The reporter starts again. Little Jets fan rescues friend from horrific attack. I'm not a Jets fan either, the boy said. Well, I, I just assumed everyone in New York was either a Giants fan or a Jets fan. Well, what team do you root for, the reporter asked. I'm a Raiders fan, the child said. The reporter starts a new sheet in his notebook and writes, Little Maniac Kills Beloved Family Pet. <laughs> Perspective. Perspective is everything, isn't it? And that is certainly true here in our story in Acts 12. In Acts 11, we saw last Sunday that the church at Antioch, it was growing by leaps and bounds. Everything was going well for this church. Great numbers of people believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation. And Luke even tells us that many people were added to the church at Antioch. And in, in, even in Acts 13, uh, after this chapter here, we find that Paul, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they're going to be sent out of this church of Antioch on, on the first missionary journey to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so in that light, what you have before this chapter, what you have after this chapter, in that light, what takes place in the Jerusalem church here is shocking. It's even unexpected somewhat. Two apostles are persecuted by King Herod. James is brutally executed. And Peter is put in prison waiting to be executed. And so from a, a human perspective, it really does. It looks as if all hell is breaking loose and the bad guys are winning. Even today, when we watch the news or read the news, even perhaps experience the news, it seems that evil is winning the day. The wicked get away with murder, it seems, while the righteous suffer terribly. And it's easy for us to wonder to ourselves, where is God in all of this? Why did He allow this to happen? Why did He allow what happened in California to happen? 
Why did he allow what happened in Paris to happen? Why does he allow anything that's evil and bad happen? How can any good come out of such awful wickedness in our world? But what we learn here in Acts 12 is that God's perspective is everything. For God's ways are not our ways. Acts 12 begins and ends vastly different. The chapter begins with the harassment of the church, but it ends with the advancement of the church. It begins with Herod killing James the Apostle of the Lord, but it ends with the angel of the Lord killing Herod. As John Stott put it, the chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. And it closes with Peter free, Herod dead, and the Word of God triumphing. And so Acts 12, as you saw here, or you read with Zach, is 25 verses long, and it reads almost like an action movie. It includes a, a brutal execution. It includes a, an unbelievable escape by prison and a wicked king who is eaten by worms. So what's the point of it all? What's the big idea? What is Luke trying to communicate to us here in this chapter? I would suggest one main idea here this morning. If you want to take notes, you're welcome to. Fill in your blanks coming up on the screen. And that big idea is this. If you oppose God, you lose. If you oppose God, you will lose. But if you glorify God, you win. And that's a glorious thing. Luke wants to make this truth plain for the early church. He wants the early church to know that you may feel small and insignificant in the Roman Empire. You may think that you are overpowered when some of our best leaders are killed on a political whim. But the truth for us and for the early church back then is this. If you glorify God with your life, if you remain true to the Lord in your Christian walk, if you stand for the gospel in a climate of hostility, listen, you will win. But if you oppose God, you will lose, and you will lose big. So be encouraged. Be encouraged here this morning. If you glorify God, you may temporarily lose, but ultimately you will win. But if you oppose God, although you may for a time win, you will ultimately lose and lose big. Jesus himself said it this way. In fact, he said it twice in the book of Luke. He said this, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James and Peter both quote the Old Testament when they write their epistles, and they both say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the main point that Luke wants us to see here this morning in this particular chapter. In this truth, it is played out over 25 verses in dramatic fashion between God and King Herod. Now, there are a lot of King Herods in the Bible some of you may have realized that. Some of you may not realize that. That's okay. The question is, well, who is this Herod? This Herod in Acts 12 is real name that he goes by. In fact, the name Herod is simply a title. He's Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I. 
This Herod was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who ordered all the babies killed in Bethlehem. You may remember that story back when Jesus was born. This Herod was also the nephew of Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded and later mocked Jesus when Jesus stood before him while he was on trial before sending him back to Pilate. And so here's what I want you to understand about the Herods. They went down in history as the, the family that opposed God in everything Christianity stood for. And so like his grandfather and his uncle before him, this Herod stretches out his hand to oppose the very hand of God. And so what you see here in this chapter is King Herod's hand versus the hand of God. The hand of Herod versus the hand of God. And Herod used his power as king to satisfy two deep desires that he has. One is to exalt self. The second desire was to crush Christians. And he uses his power as king to accomplish those two desires. I want to exalt myself and I want to crush Christians. But no opposition, no matter how great it may be, can triumph over God. Woo! That's awesome, right? We hope that the opposition this afternoon will not triumph in a stadium about 12 miles away from here. Herod's desire for self-exaltation is what led him to persecute Christians. We see this when Luke writes in verses 2 through 3, then he killed James the brother of John with the sword. In other words, he beheaded him. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. In other words, what drove Herod was his desire to be as popular as a powerful ruler. He clearly wants to be seen as impressive in the eyes of the people. So he's always trying to impress the people says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews. Let me tell you, Herod loved the praise of people. And this motivated him to crush Christians. But you can't glorify God and be devoted to exalting self. Those two things do not go together. And so if you're seeking to exalt self, you are on a collision course with God Almighty. And you're going to lose every time. For no opposition, no matter how great it may be, can triumph over God. John Calvin comments on this thing. He says it this way. This memorial story shows, as in a mirror, the end that awaits the enemies of the church. It also shows how greatly God hates pride. And so on the outset, it looks like Herod might be winning and it looks like the cause of Christ might be in jeopardy, but looks can be deceiving. King Herod thought he was invincible, but the last one standing in this chapter is who or what? It is the church of God Almighty. This is the folly of fighting God. For God is the one who is really in control. He is the one who is ruling and reigning over all. And so what I want to do is simply show you the folly of fighting God that just jumps out of the pages of the Scriptures here in Acts 12. And the first reason why it's so foolish to oppose God is the providence of God is unexplainable. 
Now, the providence is a theological word here. Let me just give you a brief definition. We won't dwell on it, but God's providence simply means that God rules over the affairs of people and nations according to his perfect will. Verse 1 says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. In other words, King Herod began a policy of persecution directed against the Christians from the Jerusalem church. The sword here. The word harass means to oppress, to mistreat, to hurt, or injure. And so Herod began using his power to crush Christians. And one of the Christians that he crushed with the sword was none other than James, the brother of John and one of the apostles. And so James becomes the very first apostle to be martyred. The brutal death of James must have come as a a massive shock to the church here. But when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, man, he seized Peter. He pounced on an opportunity, and he seized Peter, put him in prison with the intention of killing him in a public execution after the Passover. And so with very little time to weep over James, the church now faces the possibility of losing Peter as well. These first four verses, let me tell you, they dispel any myth that Christians never go through difficulty or tragedy. Listen, quite often, bad stuff happens to Christians. And quite often, we have no clue why. Oftentimes, it's unexplainable. I mean, Luke writes in verse 1 that Herod harassed some from the church. He stretched out his hand. And if you remember, last Sunday we learned that in Acts 11, we saw that the hand of God was with the church at Antioch. That hand of God symbolizes, or it's a term in the Old Testament that expresses the, the, the power of God as expressed in both his blessing and his judgment. And so the hand of God is kind of symbolic of one's power. And Herod stretches out his hand of power as the king, and he harassed some from the church. Who were these some? Why those Christians and not other Christians? What did they do to deserve this harassment? Did God not love them? We read in verse 2 that Herod killed James. Why James? Why not the other apostles? What did he do to deserve that? And although Peter was put in prison, we're going to see that he's going to be delivered by the very hand of God. But why? Was Peter more spiritual than James? Did God love Peter more than James? Listen, God does not love us any less when he allows difficulty into our lives or even tragedy into our lives. God loved James just as much as he loved Peter. But God allowed James to die and Peter to live. And get this, God was in control in both of those situations. Our tendency is to ask questions like, well, why didn't God intervene? I mean, after all, if God's so powerful and he's in control, why didn't he intervene? Why didn't God save James' life like he saved Peter's life? And the only answer is the providence of God. The very thing that the Jerusalem church acknowledged in prayer when Peter was put in prison the first time. You can read about it in Acts 4. And so in his mysterious 
providence, God allowed Herod to kill James, but he kept Herod from harming Peter. It was the throne of heaven that was in control, not the throne on earth. Deuteronomy 29.29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Proverbs 25.2 reminds us it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. In other words, there are many things about God and His ways, His providence, if you will, that we will never know or never understand this side of heaven. And yet, and yet, we can be confident We can even take comfort in the fact that no matter how difficult the trials are or how disappointing the news may be, God is still on His throne ruling over the affairs of people and nations and presidents and kings and governors. We may not always understand God's ways, but we know His sovereign will is always best. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. John Piper put it this way, so it isn't as though God fumbled the ball with James and scored a touchdown with Peter. God never fumbles the ball. If he turns it over to the other side for a few downs, it's because he knows a better way to win. We hope the Chiefs know a better way to win today, right? Listen, this is the folly of fighting God. A second reason it's foolish to oppose God is, number two, the power of God is unbeatable. Luke seems to almost relish telling this part of the story here in Acts 12. As he expands on the details of Peter's imprisonment and eventual escape by the angel of the Lord. In fact, according to verses 4 and 6, Peter was placed under heavy, heavy guard. I want you to think in terms of maximum security. Sixteen soldiers. Four soldiers for each watch kept guard over Peter. With two soldiers chained to Peter and two soldiers watching the doors. After all, the last time Peter was in prison... He mysteriously escaped. Let me tell you, King Herod here isn't about to let that happen again. But no prison can shut God out or keep His servants in if He wants to free them. It was no big deal to God to get Peter out of the most secure prison that Herod could devise. And so God sends an angel to show Herod that not even four squads of soldiers can keep Peter in his prison. So on the night before his own execution, chained to two guards behind three locked doors, we find Peter, and this is amazing to me, he is sleeping like a baby. You may be wondering, man, how is that kind of peace possible the night before your execution? How in the world is he sleeping like a baby? Peter would write later on, after this whole incident, In his first epistle, in chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, listen to his words. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties or cares or worries on him, because he, that is the Lord, cares for you. No wonder Peter could sleep 
the night before his own execution. He had cast all his anxieties, his cares, his worries on the Lord. Peter's peace in the face of danger, man, that ought to encourage us even today to rest in the Lord's power, to rest in the Lord's providence. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6-7, through 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And listen, he goes on, he says, and, 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 he's connecting it, after prayer, after casting your cares on the Lord, after letting your, your requests be made known to the Lord in prayer, and the peace of of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's how Peter was able to sleep before his execution. Peter was sleeping so soundly, Luke tells us, that when the angel of the Lord came in to bust him out, he had to jab him. In fact, the Greek translation of the word, it almost implies that he had to smack him to wake him up. And as Peter woke up from a sound sleep, according to verse 7, a light shone in the cell, and he heard the angel say, Get up quickly. And at that moment, his chains fell off of his hands. The message of this verse is that it doesn't matter what our situation may be, however dark and foreboding it is, prison walls and guards and chains are nothing to God. Now what happened next is equally extraordinary. There were three gates to escape through, as well as guards to pass by. And you get the impression that these guards were sleeping, and that the gates, as Peter and the angel are running through, that they just kind of open up like when you go into a grocery store, and the glass doors just whoop. Allowing Peter and the angel to escape into the night. Once Peter was free in the cold night air, he then almost comes to his senses, begins to realize, hey, you know what? I'm not dreaming about this. This is actually happening. This is real. Peter declares in verse 11, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Listen, folks, here's the point. The power of God is unbeatable. But we must not overlook the turning point here in the story. Go back to verse 5 and look what Luke writes. He says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but, that word but's the turning point, but it's a contrast. Up until verse 5, everything seems to be going Herod's way. Evil seems to be winning the day. All hell seems to be breaking loose. But then in verse 5, but... It's where our perspective changes. But constant prayer was offered to God by him or for him by the church. Peter is in prison, but the church is in prayer. They were not planning for Peter's funeral. Listen, they were pleading for Peter's future. Their constant prayer was not calculated to express defeat and fear so much as faith in a sovereign Lord who held their lives as well as Peter's lives in the palm of his hands. Yes, God gets all the glory here. God always gets all the glory. God deserves all the glory. And God gets all the glory for getting Peter out of prison. But you cannot disconnect 
the power of God from the prayers of the church. Thomas Watson, who's an old Puritan preacher, once said, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper writes, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. And Luke here, the writer of this book, he intends for us to read verse 5 and realize that Peter's escape from prison was a result of the church's wartime prayer. And yet, when Peter showed up at the prayer meeting to let them know he was free, and he's left standing at the street, in the street by an overly excited girl named Rhoda. Who heard, once she heard his voice, she runs back inside to tell all the people praying, what's going on? Peter's outside. Imagine her surprise when she recognized Peter's voice. She's so overcome that she forgot to even open the door. Now you would think that these people who are so fervently and constantly praying for Peter would share in Rhoda's joy that their prayers had now been answered by God. What's interesting, they don't believe her story. They think she's crazy. According to verse 15, Luke tells us, but they said to her, you are beside yourself. That's just a polite way of saying, you're crazy. You're crazy. And yet, she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, oh, it's just Peter's angel. In the words of Warren Wiersbe, the answer to their prayers is standing at the door, but they don't have faith enough to open the door and let him in. God could get Peter out of prison, but Peter can't even get himself into a prayer meeting. The whole scene is both funny and ironic at the same time. When these believers finally see Peter, they are amazed that God had actually answered their prayers. These believers, though, I, I love, this is what I love about these, the story here, just the, the realism of Luke when he writes this. These believers, they're just like us. They're not super Christians. I can relate to these believers. They have some, some faith that is a little doubt, doubting with it. It's not unshakable faith. But they were, as one writer put it, the same kind of muddled, half-believing, faith one minute, and doubt the next sort of people that most of us tend to be. The whole scene reminds us, though, that we don't have to have perfect faith to pray to our Heavenly Father. God's answer to our prayers can transcend our weak and feeble faith. That's the beauty of prayer. Though God works through our prayers, our prayers are not the real power behind the answer. God is. He is moved by prayer even when it is not perfect prayer. And so Acts 12 here reminds us that the power of God can not only unlock prison doors, but it can overcome feeble faith. God's power, folks, listen to me, it is unbeatable. 
Herod learned this lesson firsthand when God delivered his prized prisoner right out from under his nose. And now Herod is about to find out in an even greater way the folly of fighting God. Notice point three. The punishment of God is unavoidable. Let me take you back to what we said in the beginning. Herod, this Herod, he has two deep desires. Exalt self and crush Christians. And he uses his power as king to satisfy both of these desires. But as we said at the beginning, you can't glorify God and be devoted to exalting self. And so Herod was on a collision course with God. God has already put Herod in his place. You say, what's his place? To humble him. And he's already done that by taking his prized prisoner. And now God is going to turn his self-exaltation into futility by taking his very life. The truth is, and this truth doesn't just hold true for Herod. Folks, listen, it holds true for every one of us. Those who stand against God, against the glory of God, will one day face the wrath and judgment of God. And that is exactly what Herod is about to experience. Luke tells us in verse 19 that when Herod discovered the prison break the next morning, he mounted this intense manhood to, manhunt to find Peter, but he can't find Peter. And so after interrogating the guards, he ordered their execution. He was so furious with them. And then he left for a vacation at his beach house in Caesarea. And then for some unknown reason, we read in verse 20 that Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And so he cut off their food supply. But these people, they managed to arrange a meeting with Herod through his chamberlain so they could somehow show how sorry they were to him. Now, don't, here's what I want you to understand about this, and so don't miss it. It's not that these people of Tyre and Sidon really liked Herod. Listen, more likely they didn't like King Herod. Nobody did. But they did fear him, and they did fear what he could do to them. And so these people, they were more than willing to gather around Herod and kiss up to him in order to get back their food supply. And Luke tells us in verse 21, so on a set day, Herod, who is arrayed in a royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. In other words, a talk, a speech. The historian Josephus tells us that Herod's clothes that day were made of silver. And the clothes, they were, they were designed to reflect the sun's rays in a stunning manner. And so just imagine this whole scene with me, if you will. Herod is dressed in this brilliant garment of silver, and the suns are reflecting off of it, radiating from him, if you will. And he begins to speak with pride and false humility to the people. And verse 22 says, and the people kept shouting. In other words, they didn't shout it once or just twice. It went on and on. It's continual. The voice of a God and not a man. The voice of a God and not a man. The voice of a God and not a man. And Herod then does the unbelievable. He believes it. 
And he says to himself, yeah, you know what? I really am a God. I'm worthy of all this praise and glory the people are giving me. But notice what God does in verse 23. Then immediately, he doesn't even have time to relish in it. An angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. And so with one flick of sovereign power, God struck Herod and he was eaten by worms and he died. And according to the historian Josephus, he died five days later in misery and pain from tapeworms basically in his gut. But don't miss why. Luke is crystal clear in telling us why. Because he did not Give glory to God. The point of this whole gruesome death is to make clear that God and not Herod is to be glorified. Listen, if a man lifts himself up against God, he becomes weaker than a worm. To seek glory for ourselves is to declare war against God. And to declare war against God, let me tell you, is insane. Because you can't win that war. You will lose every time. So check your heart. Every one of us here this morning, we ought to go before God during this response time, and we ought to ask God, God, check my heart. And you say, check it for what? Check it for pride. God hates pride. And not just Herod's pride. He hates my pride. He hates your pride. He hates all pride. The Puritan Thomas Hooker wrote, Pride is a vice which cleaves so fast into the hearts of men that if we were to strip ourselves of all faults one by one, we should undoubtedly find it the very last and hardest to put off. But put off we must. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Herod's death is a sober example that the punishment of God is unavoidable for those who insist on opposing God. In the beginning of this chapter, Herod tried to stop God from what he was doing through his church. But the last lesson we see in this story is number four, the purpose of God is unstoppable. I just love Luke, the writer here of the book of Acts. I love how real he is. I love how he gets down into the nitty-gritty of the life of the church, all their faults, warts, the good, the bad, the ugly, you name it. And I love how he brings this story to an end here in verse 24. It's one simple verse, but it's a powerful verse. Look at it. But the word of God grew and multiplied. At the beginning of Acts 12, Herod, he seemed to be in control. And the church seemed to be losing. After all, James was dead and Peter is in prison. But at the end of the chapter, Peter is released. Herod is deceased and the church increased. Woo! Man, that's something to shout about. That's something to cheer about. 
Augustine said this about persecution of Christians and multiplication of the church. He said the martyrs were bound, imprisoned, scourged, racked, burnt, rent, butchered, and still the church multiplied. Folks, no opposition. No opposition. No matter how great it may be, can triumph against our God. His purpose is unstoppable. God will build His church, and He will multiply His Word, and nothing can stop Him under the blessing of God. And even in the midst of persecution that had seen the execution of one of their dearly beloved leaders, the church grew. Nothing can stop God's purpose for His church. The Word of God is imperishable. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against God's church. God's church grew in times of peace, as we have seen in the book of Acts so far, and it grew in times of persecution. And the question for our church is, will we do the same? Because it's coming. We have enjoyed years of peace in this country. And I'm thankful for the growth of God's church in this country. The multiplication of His church. The planting of His church and the spread of His word during times of peace. And I'm no prophet and I'm not here to predict what's happened. I don't know what's going to happen. But it seems like persecution is coming. And God's church will grow still yet. The question is, will I be a part of it? Because I'm the church. You're the church. Will you remain true to the Lord? Will you grow in your relationship with the Lord? Or will you bail out Will you quit the faith? Will you walk away? Will you abandon in the heat of it all? God was in control of the church in Acts, both in times of peace and in times of persecution. Now, in closing, I want to leave you with three wonderful assurances from what we've seen in this story. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. God sees our trials. Are you not thankful for that? That we have a Heavenly Father who sees every trial that His people, His children go through. He not only sees our trials, but He hears our prayers. He heard the prayers of this church in Jerusalem. He heard their cries out to Him for Peter. And He heard their prayers. And in this case, He answered the prayers according to His sovereign will to release Peter. And what we see is that God is fully in control. What does this mean? Glorify God. There's only one response to all this. Glorify God with your life. How? By humbly trusting Him, serving Him, and living for Him. Psalms chapter 34, 15 and 16. These verses are in your notes, coming up on the screen. Look what it says. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now here's what's interesting about this verse. 
is Peter himself, the same Peter. Peter quoted these very words years later when he wrote the book of 1 Peter. And I can't help but believe that Peter probably had the events of Acts 12 in his mind as he's writing out 1 Peter, and he now quotes these very words in Psalm 34. They certainly summarize what God did for Peter as well as what God does for us. God sees our trials. He hears our prayers. And He is fully in control. In fact, when you read Acts 12, it's apparent that no one is in control except God. Herod is certainly not in control. Peter is not in control. And the church is not in control. Only one is in control. And that's none other than our God. Therefore, I submit to you, I plead with you, as I plead with myself, we ought to bow the knee here this morning and humble ourselves. Glorify God by humbly trusting Him, serving Him, and living for Him with your life. And when it's all said and done, get this, you will not lose. You will win. Our God guarantees it. Jesus Himself said, For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So be encouraged here this morning. Don't be impressed by temporary setbacks and triumphs over the Gospel. Be bold. You be courageous to proclaim the Gospel and leave the outcome to God. And until Jesus returns, until He comes back for His church, His bride, listen, we as His bride, His church, we keep trusting him we keep serving him and we keep living for him and his mission because it is unstoppable and the question is whose side are you going to be on there was the hand of herod and there was the hand of god and we are faced with a choice with your heads bowed and as we close in prayer And as we come to our response time, the praise team's going to sing a verse, a chorus. And let me encourage you, right where you're seated, to humble yourself in prayer and to submit yourself to God. To give your life to Him and to live for Him and to trust Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this message in Acts 12, how encouraging it is to know that you are fully in control of all things and all people. Lord, may we see the truth that those who oppose you lose, but those who glorify you win. And so, Lord, give us the grace to humble ourselves before you and to glorify you alone with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.